Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field, the podcast where we share your student affairs stories from fresh perspectives to seasoned experts. This is season two, Critical and Crisis Conversations, featuring a special COVID-19 and higher education miniseries. This podcast is brought to you by NASPA, and I'm Jill Creighton, your SA Voices from the Field host. In today's episode, we are going to be continuing our dialogue of the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on marginalized communities. Specifically, today's dialogues will focus on LGBTQQIA plus communities, as well as Latinx communities. I'm pleased to welcome two amazing guests. The first is Dr. Matthew Jeffries, and the second is Dr. Salvador Mena. Dr. Jeffries, he, him, his, serves as the director of the Gender Identity, Expression, and Sexual Orientation Resource Center at Washington State University. In this role, he supports system-level change in six campuses in their creation and implementation of LGBTQ plus affirming policies and procedures. Additionally, he supports students and channels their energy for activism into tangible material change. Prior to his role, he worked in academic advising, new student programs, and residence life. Matthew earned a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish from Ohio University, a Master of Arts in Higher Education and Student Affairs from The Ohio State University, and a PhD in Cultural Studies and Social Thought and Education from Washington State University. Dr. Jeffries is also the 2020 recipient of the NASPA Doris Machiko Ching Excellence Award in Student Affairs Administration. Our next guest, Dr. Salvador Mena, born in Harlem, New York, and raised by a single parent in the South Bronx. Dr. Mena is a graduate of the New York City public school system and was the first in his family to attend college. Leaving New York City to attend the University of Maine proved to be a transformative experience that inspired him to pursue a career in higher education and reaffirmed his commitment to issues of inclusion and social justice. Joining Rutgers in August of 2014 as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, Dr. Mena was elevated to the role of Senior Associate Vice Chancellor in 2017 and Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs in 2018. As Senior Associate Vice Chancellor, he managed the day-to-day operations of the Division of Student Affairs and helped provide leadership for 25 offices and departments that make up the division. Specifically, he supervised the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Dean of Students, Assistant Vice Chancellor for Student Engagement, and Departments of Dining Services, Residence Life, Student Centers, and Activities, and Cultural Centers. With a robust professional history of serving students in various administrative roles at both public and private colleges and universities, Dr. Mena has since held positions at the College of Staten Island of the City University of New York, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the University of Maryland College Park, Goucher College, Brown University, Illinois State University, and the University of Maine. Professionally, Dr. Mena has also been involved with a number of higher education professional organizations, including NASPA. He served a two-year appointment on the ACPA-NASPA Joint Task Force on the Future of Student Affairs and served as the inaugural co-chair of NASPA's Latina-Latino Knowledge Community. He also served as a faculty member and organizer of NASPA's inaugural New Professionals Institute and served on the NASPA 2017 National Conference Planning Committee. He currently serves as an editorial board member on the NASPA Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice, also known as JSART. Dr. Mena is a regular presenter at national conferences and has published in the Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice and contributed a book chapter in Cultural Centers in Higher Education, Perspectives on Identity, Theory, and Practice. 
Sterling, Virginia, Silas Publishing. Earning a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's of education in student development and higher education administration from the University of Maine, he received his doctor of philosophy degree in higher education, student affairs, and international attending and policy from the University, University of Maryland, Carolina. Carolina. Focused Dr. on his dissertation study, the titled Phenomena the of Latinos the case and analysis in HBCUs in the South. Attending a historically black university in North Carolina. Focused oh, on understanding the growing phenomena of Latinos enrolling in HBCUs in the South. Welcome, Matthew. So glad to have you today. And what we didn't mention in Matthew's bio is that he is the 2020 oh, so recipient of the NASPA Doris Machiko Ching Excellence in Student Affairs Professional work this year. So congratulations to you. And full disclosure, Matthew and I are at the same it's institution. Weird, but it's so good to so see you. while we are typically able to sit in a room together, we are appropriately physically distanced several miles across town. It's so funny. When we ran into you and your partner in the grocery store, I don't think I've ever yes. been so excited to run into colleagues in a small town in a grocery store before. Just like, oh my gosh, you have a beyond a box of a face. It's great. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to digging into your content area today, given the work that you do, not only for our localized LGBTQQIA plus population, but also nationally. I'm hoping that our dialogue today will help raise the consciousness for student affairs professionals on the wide variety of experiences that are a wide variety because the queer experience isn't a monolith uh, and the queer students don't right exist now. in a so, vacuum. Matthew, it's not just take? their queer identities. And so I think my hot take, if you will, is there's a lot happening. And I think that like we're seeing students that it's just a semester of unfortunate events. So it's the employment that was already like so necessary for their survival is now becoming very uncertain and precarious. I think it's for some of our students, healthcare. I think for many, again, education and college is the, the glue that holds it all together. And so um, we're at a pretty comprehensive institution and I know many op uh, institutions operate like us. We have healthcare, we have employment, all housing, all these things that just allow for our students to have a pretty seamless experience. Um, and so I think a lot about healthcare and where our students are at with that, especially if they're hoping to have gender-affirming surgeries and those have been stopped because they're not deemed life-threatening. Um, I don't like to use the term elective because I'm like, it's not elective, but non-life-threatening right now. So we're seeing a lot of that stop. Um, and depending on where folks are going back to, they may not have access to, to great healthcare or queer healthcare. So that's kind of on my mind. I think closure as a community. I was talking to a senior the other day and she was like, wow, this is not, that's not the closure I wanted, which most of our students who are graduating are experiencing and I think there are some questions of now, what do, how do I find community wherever I'm going next? And we didn't get to engage fully in those conversations of how do you find a queer community that makes you feel valued and seen in a new place? Because making friends after you leave college, I think is really hard. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. That's not a class that we teach, and that's probably one that we should, because yeah. I've seen that same experience for students of all identities when they leave the university mm -hmm. confines. No one teaches you how to make friends outside the classroom, and those relationships are differently forming now, given we're so online heavy. 
Uh, and while we have folks who know a lot of people, the depth of a relationship is much different. Thinking about what you just mentioned around closure, one of the critical events for many college campuses is a lavender gra- graduation type lavender event. Lavender graduation is my so favorite event of the year, even though it is so bittersweet. And, and so what we have done is we have an incredible marketing and communication team. team that has created a yearbook for our graduating seniors. And so we're finalizing that. And so it'll have a picture, their future plans. It has a note from me as I wrote over a lot of listening to vitamin C's graduation, uh, friends forever song. And isn't it though? Oh my gosh. And I will say that Cosmopolitan had a list of a listicle of 40 graduation songs that I've started to listen to um, to kind of close my own self (laughs) out from this year. But we're doing a yearbook for our students and it'll give some closure for, I think folks that didn't get to see each other don't have, you know, they're not the more acquaintances than, you know, close, close friends. And then we're going to do a social media campaign over the summer to highlight what's happening with our students. And so those are two small ways. And then we'll mail the yearbook, a printed copy of the yearbook and all of their regalia. So a rainbow tassel, maybe some rainbow honor cords, stoles, some other stuff, depending on the degree they've earned. Thinking about what you said on summer, and by the time this episode drops, uh, most of our semester schools will have concluded. Some of our quarter schools will have not yet. But there's a chance, and we don't know for sure, that we're, as an industry, hybrid online and in-person in the fall. If we're able to be in-person in the fall, likely social distancing measures are required. And we don't have any crystal ball that shows us spring. So when you think about the average student affairs professional who maybe focuses on a different functional area like clubs and orgs advising or leadership programs. I think it's just don't make assumptions conduct. that there's what the access to everything. What advice would you give those professionals when considering in the individualized needs of higher levels population. of homelessness, food insecurity, just basic needs stuff. And so, you know, the access to the internet, just being able to do as much extra on top of this other stresses that are involved, right? We just need to keep that in mind, all of us, and to not add more, but to figure out what's a good balance and to not say that like you need to be doing certain things to be the ideal student or a good student. I think surviving is a, is a good student right now. I also think about one of the experiences that the queer community might be having right now is a tension of identity and safety. Yeah, so at we're the place a bit of everything, gone back right? To, it's uh, interesting, I think, how much our work has changed so in the last 10 years of some of the stories and how much more of the media has changed, maybe some of the home lives for the better. Um, but we're still hearing stories of, I don't feel comfortable going home. I don't want to go home. I have to stop using my chosen name um, and chosen pronouns. I have to, you know, not talk about my significant other. And I think, you know, that just weighs on people. And I think that college is this kind of oasis for many where they can just be their full selves and be seen for that. And so I think for many, it's been very difficult in saying, you know, I'm going to go back home. And especially because we don't know how long that's going to be. I think some are like, I'm just going to hunker down and do that for a couple of months. And then I'm going to be back with my people. And now we're like, We expect to be back in the fall, but what does it look like if we're not? And how can we help students when they may not want to, you know, Zoom or Skype into something because if their parents see that they're doing something LGBT related, that they're not going to feel supported or, you know, be admonished for that. So I think with the support of that is 
figuring out the other ways. Our students are extremely savvy. Uh, they've been using Tumblr for probably a decade, maybe 15 years to find community in an online space that's a little bit more hidden or obscured than, you know, watching something, you know, in a Netflix party, although we're offering that too. I think that connection is a more important component of our lives than ever right now. Uh, I also saw some really creative things. Shout out to the University of Arizona who put their orientation in Minecraft. And so really meeting students where they're at. I saw another institution that unfortunately can't remember the name that started a TikTok channel for incoming students. So I bring this up to say, you know, our high school seniors are also missing out on all of these life experiences, right? And they're going to come to us in the fall having not gotten that moment, having not had uh, really that marker of transition into early adulthood. And especially for our uh, students that are incoming from the LGBTQIA and beyond community, I wonder what that will mean if they may have been waiting to live their full selves until they got to college. And also what that means for their family lives over the summer if they hadn't been able to fully express their identities yet. Yeah. Uh, so, so what one are of the things about? that what is the we will do no matter what is we will be doing a cohort, which is a cohort-based model, kind of an LGBTQ plus for specific orientation that we piloted last year, just so that we can start to help students show like, this is what it means to be in a queer community. Because if you come from spaces where you've never been allowed to explore that, or you may have been the only, you may have had supportive family or parents, but you didn't have anyone else in your small school. It's a transition into this kind of new culture, right? So that's one big piece. And I think the other piece is that many folks never, like queer folks have never had the opportunity to go to a prom with someone that they wanted to, that kind of a thing. And so we still offer those type of opportunities. Um, like for instance, we do a queer prom every other year. Um, we host one year and then the University of Idaho, which is about seven or eight miles away, um, hosts the uh, alternative years. So we're still doing some of those kind of what are seen as early adolescent transition moments, but we're still doing them because folks haven't been able to fully engage necessarily with them. What other innovative practices are you seeing nationwide that I, right now uh, that are happening to support queer students really critical as they transition right? into saying, this Things are going to be better tomorrow because that's not been good for our community because we have left a lot of people behind for many, many years. But how do we get into what I think right now is the most important is that material hope. How can we get money to our students who need it the most? And we're seeing that across, right? We're seeing that with all sorts of different demographics of students. But I think seeing the institutions who are really able to funnel money to students and their needs as quickly as possible is just, I think, so imperative. I think the other things that I'm seeing from kind of the listserv is how are we still just connecting and engaging? And is that Netflix parties? Is that through Tumblr? Is that through TikTok? Um, whatever that is to create those connections. And I think the, uh, the last piece might be is reaching out individually to students be like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. Like, what's going on, right? Because they may not want to reach out to us thinking that we're busy or, you know, maybe they just kind of get lost in all of the things that are happening. But us taking that moment to say, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. I think that means a lot to them, especially so much else is going on around them. I think this is such an important dialogue to, again, be raising the consciousness of our essay pros 
around specific concerns that might be affecting our queer student populations differently than other student populations. But as we have said throughout the episode, there are a wide variety of experiences and we can't speak to a single story in this opportunity to have this dialogue. So strongly encourage folks to make those individual connections with your students, regardless of what identities they may carry and hoping that uh, that will help them persist to the fall semester or to whatever they're doing next. But Matthew, since you literally have the microphone, is there anything else that you want our SA listeners to hear? I think just one more time, you know, sticking with that no one is queer in a vacuum. And so we have a lot of international queer students who are worried about going home, students with dis- queer students with disabilities um, in a wide range of disabilities, and our queer undocumented students who, especially if they're DACA, who sit in very precarious places right now. Um, and so thinking about those important intersections and convergence of identities is is imperative to the work that we do. Kind of wish we would have led the dialogue with that. That would have been a really great place. Thank you for that reminder. Uh, But Dr. Crenshaw's work around intersectionality, I think, is just such an important component of how we choose to aggregate and disaggregate identity in the way that we serve students and something that's important for us to consistently be reminded of. And that's such a deeper and longer conversation in so many ways, because we know that our students of identity one uh, also carry identities two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera. But yeah, thank you for putting that in space. Matthew, are you ready for our lightning round? I am. All right. You get seven questions and 90 seconds. Here we go. Number one, if you were a conference keynote speaker, what would your walk-up music be? Anything Lady Gaga. When you were five years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? A lawyer. Who is your most influential professional mentor? Mamta Akapati. Who's your favorite author, personal or professional? Janet Fitch. And your essential student affairs read? Anything by Sarah Ahmed. The podcast that you have spent the most hours listening to in the last year? True crime obsessed. Mm, Same. And also shout outs, personal or professional. Um, Just to my team for doing so much for so many students and always giving your all. Thank you so much for sharing your voice with us today, Matthew. If folks want to get a hold of you after the show, how can they do that? Email is my favorite. I love email. Uh, Matthew, (laughs) M-A-T-T-H-E-W, period, Jeffries, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S at WSU.edu. All right, Matthew. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's time to take a quick break and toss it over to producer Chris to learn what's going on in the NASPA world. Thanks, Jill. Thanks so much for having me back again this week. And there's a number of things happening within the association. In the international education, KC, they are having a member interest survey that they've been sending around to all of their members. So if you are a part of the international education, KC, please take a minute to fill out the two to four minute survey as it's helping them to understand the areas that IEKC members are working professionally, development opportunities that they're looking for, uh, and other aspects that will help them to formulate things that they will create for the future. They are pulling together some more leaders for the KC, so encourage everyone to take a look at NASPA's Volunteer Central as all of the positions are posted there. And know that if you are interested at all in being the next International Symposium co-director, the application for 2021 and 2022 is going to be coming up on July 10th. And you can find out more information about that by contacting Janelle Rains 
at J-R-A-H-Y-N-S at NASPA.org. She's the Associate Director of NASPA Global Initiatives. So you can submit your application to NASPA, but you can also reach out to Janelle if you have any other questions. It may seem like a long time away, but the 2021 NASPA Annual Conference is in the planning. It's going to be in Kansas City, Missouri from March 20th to 24th of 2021. And it is time for you to start thinking about submitting your program proposal for the 2021 NASPA Annual Conference. You can do this between now and Friday, September 4th. Now, Friday, September 4th may seem a long time off, but as you know, the summers go by fast, and you definitely want to be thinking about that. So you want to go to the conference website on the NASPA website to be able to take a look at what you need to be doing to be able to submit a program, to be able to make sure that it fits the theme, and to be prepared for the future. So you definitely want to do that as well. There are going to be a couple of NASPA public policy division events that are coming up here in the next few weeks. Wednesday, July 8th, from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there's going to be a webinar on inclusive opportunities for access and students in higher education. And on July 17th, from 11 to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there is going to be a another event on civic engagement and freedom of expression. So encourage all all of you to check those out. You can find out more information through registering on the course page on the NASPA website. And finally, I just wanted to put a plug out that if you have not signed up for any of the knowledge communities within NASPA, I highly encourage you to do so. Over the last few weeks, the knowledge communities have really taken a proactive stance on looking at racism in society today and providing a lot of different great resources for all of you, from books to online resources to other things that will help everyone to conceptualize and contextualize what is happening in society today. All of the different knowledge communities have been sending out information to their members to help them with this and to help us better serve our students. So I highly encourage all of you to sign up. Make sure that you're signed up because this is the way that you're going to be able to get the information sent directly to your inbox. Every week we're going to be sharing some amazing things that are happening within the association. So we are going to be able to try and keep you up to date on everything that's happening and allow for you to be able to get involved in different ways because the association is as strong as its members. And for all of us, we have to find our place within the association, whether it be getting involved with a knowledge community, giving back within one of the, the centers or the divisions of the association. And as you're doing that, it's important to be able to identify for yourself, where do you fit? Where do you want to give back? Each week, we're hoping that we will share some things that might encourage you, might allow for you to be able to get some ideas that will provide you with an opportunity to be able to say, hey, I see myself in that knowledge community. I see myself doing something like that. Or encourage you in other ways that allow for you to be able to think beyond what's available right now to offer other things to the association, to bring your gifts, your talents 
to the association and to all of the members within the association because through doing that, all of us are stronger and the association is better. Tune in again next week as we find out more about what is happening in NASPA. Welcome, Salvador, to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. And our dialogue today will really be focused on how we can best serve Latinx student populations amidst the pandemic. This is an interesting dialogue given your role as the founding member of the Latinx KC for NASPA, a founding chairperson. But before we dig into the content of our episode today, Sal, I'm wondering, or Salvador, sorry, if you could just tell me a little bit about how your interest evolved in specifically serving and working with students with Latinx identity. Sure. First, you know, my own lived experience um, as a bi-ethnic, half-Dominican, half-Puerto Rican. My father came here from the Dominican Republic in the late 1960s, and my mother came here from Puerto Rico, and they met. So I grew up in New York City in the South Bronx, so I was exposed to a strong Latin American, African diaspora community growing up. And then I went to college in the state of Maine, and so it was a total 180 from how I grew up in New York City to then going to Maine and really reflecting on my identity up there in a very predominantly white environment. And so, and then from there, as I pursued the career in higher education, my professional experiences have had me working broadly speaking with issues of diversity and inclusion, but also with a focus on the Latinx community. And so when I worked at Brown University, for example, part of my role there was to serve the Latinx students on that particular campus. And then obviously throughout my professional journey, obviously that being part of my identity and part of who I am and how that sort of plays itself out in the academy, and then involved with our professional association, NASPA, a number of us had the opportunity, in particular Laura Valdez from the University of New Mexico, her and I co-chaired the inaugural LKC. And again, and like many uh, other communities of color at the time, we're looking for ways to come together within NASPA and to make our voices heard and, and, and what we had to offer the profession at the time. And so I had the, the honor back in um, 2002, I believe, to serve as the inaugural co-chair of the, the KC. And looking back, just very proud of how far that particular community has come um, within NASPA. But again, on the on the shoulders of others who came before and paved the way for us at that particular point in time. Both thinking about the students that we serve, but also the professionals in our community that identify as having a Latinx or Lat- Latino or Latina identity. Where do you sit personally in terms of the priorities that you want the profession to be thinking about for folks with that identity in the pandemic? Sure. I think, you know, again, that it's a very diverse community. It's a community that's been here for generations and a community that's arriving at this very minute. And to really have a good nuanced appreciation for what connects that community as a whole, but also what makes it unique in terms of its various parts. And so, and depending what part of the country you're in, the histories are related to those communities, whether it's in Texas, whether it's in California, whether it's in New York, and now sort of emerging communities throughout the Midwest and the Southeast United States. And so, so again, it's just the understanding that it's not a monolithic community, that it's very diverse and it has um, very unique challenges throughout that spectrum of diversity. And so, so I think that's the most important thing that higher professionals can do in terms of understanding where they're serving. So I've had the opportunity to serve in the South, for example. I worked at UNC Chapel Hill and worked in CUNY in New York City. And so the Latinx communities in both those places are just very different in terms of the types of issues, in terms of their countries of origin, how they've have acclimated to those to those environments. Obviously, Puerto Ricans have been in New York for generations now, where in North Carolina, those are more recent arrival communities have arrived from either other parts of the United States or from 
Central America and other uh, South American countries, for example. And so it's just having that nuanced understanding of who those students are that are on your campus and what communities are they coming from, either locally, from country of origin or nationally. I feel like the Asian American and Desi American communities have similar kind of monolithic labels applied to them as Latinx communities in which we see vast disparities in wealth. We see vast disparities in opportunity. We see certain pockets of ethnic groups popping up in various geographic regions of the country as more dominant in some spaces than others. And then at the end of the day, the nation, and including in higher ed, we say, how do we serve Latin next students or how do we serve ADPI students? And and then I know that I at least I step back and I go, wow, that is really just asking me, how do I serve human beings? And so kind of knowing that, but also wanting to bring forward into the consciousness that there might be some uh, unique challenges for, for students and for professionals who uh, live in the world with Latinx identity. What do you want to bring into the consciousness of the profession? Sure. Again, just building off what I said before, I mean, I think we have to looked at class issues, again, and how those play themselves out along the lines of various types of disparities, for example, that also plague other groups as well. So that's very important. And what does it mean in terms of academic achievement, student success along that class socioeconomic continuum, and who's enrolling, who's not, and why, and who's graduating, and how, um, again, um, class socioeconomic status plays a role in terms of educational access. There's also, you know, Racial and ethnic diversity is also very important to understand. For me, in terms of my my parents coming from the Caribbean, for example, I've got a strong African influence in my bloodline, a strong European influence, and a strong indigenous influence. And so understanding how people with Latinx identity identify along those racial and ethnic lines and what that means for how students identify on the college campus. And so that's important. Gender as well, one of the reasons why we're now using the term Latinx is because, again, we're, we're being inclusive of gender identity, for example. And so to understand how that plays itself out within Latinx culture um, and what that means. And so, so again, so, so I think, you know, going back to the diversity piece, we just have to have a sophisticated, nuanced understanding of the various types of backgrounds along various intersections that Latinx communities uh, represent and reflect on our respective college campuses. Culture as well, whether someone identifies with Puerto Rican culture or Mexican-American culture or Tejano culture or Chicano culture or or Mexican culture, Salvadorian culture, you know, so, so there are those nuances as well. So having an appreciation for cultural differences, how there's some similar cultural similarities, but also those differences, you know, how Spanish gets spoken. Is Spanish spoken or not? And if it's spoken, what kind of Spanish? Is it more of a Americanized dialect in terms of um, Spanish, or is it more of a country-specific or region-specific sort of Spanish dialect? And so all these things contribute to this notion of Latinx identity and how it might play on one's campus. You know, I've been on campuses where you have significant numbers of Latinx students, but there was differences between West Coast Chicanos and Mexicans from Texas or Mexicans from Mexico and differences between Puerto Ricans from the mainland and Puerto Ricans from the island. Oftentimes around class differences, Puerto Ricans coming from the island to school in the United States were more privileged, economically speaking, compared to those um, who were coming from the U.S. and from urban areas like I grew up in. And so there were tensions on campus between those groups. So again, so depending on what campus you're serving on, what part of the country, you just need to have a broad appreciation for those nuances in terms of 
where your students are coming from. You know, if you're in Iowa, you're probably seeing the sons and daughters of migrant workers, for example, you know, on your campus, while at the same time, maybe meeting the sons and daughters of folks who may be been in Iowa for some time, you know, who were those pioneers who moved to Iowa at a time, you know, when others weren't there and sort of paved the way. So I guess there's a lot of nuances that folks serving college students need to have an appreciation with this particular community. And Salvador, your campus, as I understand, is both a member of HAKU and also having the HSI designation. Is that correct? Yes and no. So we're a system, Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey, and then we have four institutions. There is Rutgers Newark, Rutgers Camden, and Rutgers New Brunswick. Then there's Rutgers RBHS, which is Rutgers Biomedical Health Sciences, which is our health sciences sort of school. And so Rutgers Newark is the one that currently has that destination. We're in Rutgers New Brunswick, which is the flagship. Uh, we're working on that. 13% of our students on the 50,000 student campus are Latinx. And so we're working to move in that direction. And thinking about kind of efforts towards HSI status for the flagship campus, but already achieved HSI status for your uh, your other campus, what does that mean in terms of your student affairs practice and how are you creating intentional efforts to help increase your Latinx enrollment? Right. So I think that we're one of the most diverse institutions of higher education in the country. Part of that is by default because of the region that, that we're located in. And so we're fortunate to be um, a great school that's attractive to our in-state students. And so we have a diverse state population and, and region that we sit in. And so that sort of helps. But we've been well underway for some time now in terms of serving our Latinx community. Like many institutions in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, we had our share of students who were activists and pushing for ethnic studies and cultural centers and what have you. And so we've had a Center for Latino Arts and Culture that was founded in the early 90s that's under the Division of Student Affairs and unlike many cultural centers around the country is well-staffed, has a strong connection to, to alumni and works collaboratively with the other cultural centers on campus and also with other academic partners in terms of living learning programs that we do in collaboration. And so we're pushing the envelope. I think for us, our main concern right now is the persistence of our Latino men, Latinx men who are graduating persistent at a lower rate than our other students. Um, it's a concern that we also have for our African-American men as well. So we're beginning to look at that from a holistic perspective right now to make a concerted effort to ensure their success at Rutgers. And so, so that's where we need to do some additional work to think through what the experience is like for Atlantic men on our campus and why is it that they're not persisting at the same rate as our other students. But for the most part, from a cultural perspective, from a perspective of affirming who our students are, from the percentage of students that are on our campus who identify as Latinx, those are all areas in which we've made some good headway in. We just need to figure out the, the male piece at this particular point in time. But there's a beautiful cultural center on campus. There are prominent Latinx administrators on campus, including myself, faculty as well. You know, it doesn't mean that we're not always pushing to have the conversation as to uh, representation and uh, areas of studies and what have you. But we're in a um, good situation right now where, you know, there's good representation, but we need to continue to work to ensure that those who are there and those who are coming in the future have a quality overall experience. We don't want any student to graduate from Rutgers not feeling like they own their experience, that they were sort of just a, a gas in transition passing through. And so even though we have some great resources to work with and, and sort of compositional diversity, we have then the responsibility to make do with that, to work with that. Because again, as you know, you just can't have diversity and leave it at that. You really have to, to, to work at it. And so that's one of the things that I've enjoyed about being at Rutgers, that 
in many respects, I feel like I'm representing there through the student body and through my colleagues. And um, as a result, we're able to have some concerted conversations about the issues of the day. And how do you sense that the COVID-19 pandemic is intersecting or impacting some of these goals? Well, you know, it's impacting our entire community and, and with respect to Latinx community having a high rate of impact or infection as compared to the general population, it's impacting our students. So we have students who have lost family members, have lost parents, who've had to go back into households that are being shared with extended family, for example. We know that those that are being impacted by COVID-19 from this particular community, from the Latinx community, typically centers around socioeconomics, the fact that the type of work that many are doing is essential work, whether it's work in farms, um, in other types of fields, in construction, what have you. So they don't have the luxury to be able to work from home, oftentimes living in sort of dense settings. So, you know, we've heard stories of students who are sharing a two-bedroom apartment with eight family members, for example. Those are all the types of conditions that contribute to, to the spread Obviously, disparities around access to health care, worries about the cost related to health care, not having health care, you know, having employment where there's no flexibility there in terms of how you can work. So our students reflect those types of issues through their families. And so from that perspective, it's hit at home. And so, you know, and then there's still so much that we don't know about how COVID-19 uh, is spreading. And so, so as a result of the types of conditions that some segments of the landless community find themselves in, um, is having a disparate impact on them. And so those are conditions that have been in play for some time now. It's nothing new, right? So who's working farms? Who's helping get the food to the supermarkets? Who's transporting the food? And so these are conditions that have been at play for some time now, but it's only being magnified and exposed as a result of this current pandemic that we're dealing with. And thus then the, the high percentage of Latinx members who find themselves dealing with COVID-19. And obviously fears around immigration status. You know, you're going to be less likely to go um, to a doctor, to ask for help, to ask for service, to go get a test out of fear of being, you know, potentially deported, for example. And so these are all um, realities that are contributing to this, you know, disproportionate uh, rate that we see of infection in the Latinx community. Salvador, any thoughts that you'd want to share uh, in closing of our dialogue today? You know, again, there's a lot going on right now in the world and, and in our country, and it's a lot of it's driven by, you know, xenophobia, the fear of the other. And as we just saw recently down in Florida, where the, the governor is blaming the, the migrants for the spread of COVID-19 there as they're dealing with their own increase and spike um, in infection. Um, those are the types of things that, you know, don't do anybody well and impact the emotional well-being of our students, obviously, because they, they identify with others. And to see that happening obviously takes a toll. And so we have to just, you know, be sensitive to the broader dynamics that are at play here that also impact the broader community. So it's not just that people are being infected and dying from this disease, but that it's also there is a sort of social political context in which this is all playing itself in and that that takes a toll. And there's a type of trauma there that we also have to account for, you know, so that that student who identifies as Latinx, you know, who's down in Florida and walks into a, a mall or to a Target is exposed to what the governor just said, right? Either directly or indirectly, because um, you have people telling them, well, go home, don't bring the COVID here. So we, just, so we just need to be aware of that broader context in which this is all happening. Really important thought there. Thank you so much for sharing that. Salvador, it is time for our lightning round. So we have seven questions in 90 seconds. You ready? 
I'm ready. All right, here we go. Number one, if you were a keynote speaker at a conference, what would your entrance music be? Public Enemy, uh, Fight the Power. What did you want to be when you grew up when you were five years old? A pilot. Who is your most influential professional mentor? A woman named uh, Peggy Jablonski, former Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs at UNC Chapel Hill and Dean of Students at Brown University. Who is your favorite author, personal or professional? I'm going to pass on that one. All right. Your essential student affairs read. Man, that's a, a, a loaded question. You got to be well versed in this day and age, you know, so that there's, there's no essential. Everything's essential. As vice chancellor, you got to read uh, about everything from the economy to politics to what our colleagues are, are writing about. So I'm, I'm all over the map there. All right. The podcast you've spent the most hours listening to in the last calendar year. There's a professor down the University of Maryland, uh, Michelle Espino, who does a Lamex podcast. I had the opportunity to, to be on it, but she has had some interesting guests on it and looking at things from different perspectives. And so, so that that would be the one. All right. And finally, any shout outs you'd like to give personal or professional? Just a shout out to my colleagues in general. I've been very fortunate in this profession to have met many wonderful people throughout my career. And they've all been part of my, my journey, which has been a wonderful journey. And I've had good company. Little shout out to colleague from Miami of Ohio there on a good company. So yeah, so to all my colleagues, um, you know who you are. I feel fortunate to have had you on my journey. So thank you. Excellent. If folks would like to contact you after the show today, how can they do that? Twitter um, at SBMENA, SB as in boy, MENA, M-E-N-A, one at Twitter and email at salvador.mena at ruckers.edu. Salvador, thank you so much for sharing your voice with us today. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of SA Voices from the Field, a podcast brought to you by NASPA. This show is made possible because of you, our listeners. You mean so much to us. If you'd like to reach the show, you can email us at savoices at naspa.org or find me on Twitter at Jill Creighton. We welcome your feedback and your topic and guest suggestions. We'd love it if you'd take a moment to tell a colleague about the show and like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. This episode was produced and hosted by Dr. Jill Creighton. That's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Dr. Chris Lewis. Guest coordination by Anna Schilter. Special thanks to Washington State University's Division of Student Affairs for your support as we create this project. Catch you next time.